Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode of Truth and Justice is sponsored in part by Audible. Audible is offering for Serial Dynasty listeners to download one free audiobook. Audible is not only a sponsor, but it's a product that I personally use. I always keep several audiobooks downloaded onto my Audible app to keep me entertained between episodes of my favorite podcasts. Audible is a great platform. The app is free. Audible can be installed on several devices, and it will track your progress on all of them. I just downloaded a new audiobook today that you all might want to check out. I'm really excited to listen to it. It's called He Killed Them All by Janine Pirro. Pirro was the former district attorney who reopened the cold case of the murder of Kathleen Durst. She has always believed that Kathleen's husband, Robert Durst, is the one who committed the murder. And in this shocking audiobook, she makes her case beyond a shadow of a doubt, revealing stunning, previously unknown secrets about the crimes he is accused of committing. The book is not only written by Pirro, but it's also read in her own voice on Audible. To check out He Killed Them All or to download any free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash Serial Dynasty. Today's episode is also sponsored by Sean T's Prep Tea Foods. We all know that exercise is only a part of a healthy lifestyle. Nutrition is every bit as important as your exercise. And Sean T has put a healthy lifestyle and a nutritious diet right at the tips of your fingers. All you have to do is go to PrepTFoods.com and choose the meal plan that best suits your needs. The meals will be delivered directly to your home or office. You can choose to have three meals a day delivered, just lunch and dinner. You can have vegetarian meals delivered, paleo dinners. As I'm sure you all know, Shanti isn't about dieting. He's about a healthy lifestyle. So you won't find any preservatives or fillers in this food. It's all natural, great, organic food delivered right to your home or office. To check out Prep Tea Foods, go to PrepTFoods.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to thank you all for putting up with my much-needed week off. I was able to spend a lot of time with family and friends, and it was nice to have a Saturday afternoon without a computer on my lap editing the podcast. But after that break, I'm re-energized and I'm ready to move forward, and I hope you're all ready to come with me. At the start of the show today, I need to make a few announcements. First and foremost, I want to deeply thank every single one of you who contributed to the GoFundMe campaign to build the new studio. The studio is now about 95% complete, and I am currently recording in the studio that you funded. And I want to thank every single one of you for that. It's an amazing workspace. If you go on Truth Justice Pod on Twitter or the Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff Facebook page, I'll have pictures posted there for you to look at the finished product. But I also want to mention to you that this is the first time recording in here because I don't have all of the sound dampening panels up yet. I have most of them. So I'm hoping that this recording is not coming out echoey. I won't be able to tell until after I'm done and I get in and start editing. So so if there's a little bit of an echo to this episode, I apologize for that and it'll be corrected before next week. I also wanted to let all of you know who do not follow us on Twitter or Facebook that as I'm sure you figured out by now, Jim Clemente will not be on this week's episode. Before the last episode, I had emailed back and forth with Laura Richards. The plan was to get the interview done after Thanksgiving. But unfortunately, once again, schedules got very busy. They're already into recording their next episode. And Laura and Jim have told me that they're tied up through the 18th of this month. So I apologize for the promise of the interview today. Everything looked good, and I thought that this was when it was going to happen. But it just didn't work out. Jim and Laura both assured me that they are still very dedicated and very interested in the case, and they're excited to get into it, but they just have to take care of their other responsibilities first. So moving forward, I'm not going to be teasing when they're going to come on the show because we've had these scheduling conflicts a couple of times now. 
But just know that they are working deeply in the case. They are intending on coming back on the show. I don't think it'll be too long before they do. And it'll be a nice surprise for everyone when they come in and give us their analysis. And the final announcement that I wanted to make to all of you is that during the last couple of weeks, I've made a major transition in my life. I mentioned to you all way back when we began the GoFundMe campaign for the studio that Truth and Justice will be continuing on, we will be investigating more cases, and that I was going to be making some transitions. My major announcement regarding the transition is that as of December 31st of this year, I will no longer be a fire chief. Just before Thanksgiving, I submitted my letter of resignation. After months of heavy thought and prayer and discussion with my wife, I've decided to go ahead and finally take that leap and take an early retirement from the fire department and to devote my energy to working towards this cause. As I've gotten deeper and deeper into this investigation, and not only with this case, but other cases, I've realized two things. Number one is that I can't keep this up forever. My full-time job at the fire department eats up a lot of my time. And for the last seven months, every single evening and weekend has been spent with a laptop on my lap, either on the couch or laying in bed with my wife, working on researching and preparing for the show. I've dedicated 16 years of my life to the fire service, and I don't regret one minute of it. It has been an amazing and fulfilling career. I've had the opportunity to affect thousands of lives over these years and have made lifelong bonds with some great friends that will forever be in my life. But I believe it's time for me to move on with my next mission. I believe that this podcast, I believe that all of us together can make a difference and continue to affect thousands of lives by challenging our broken legal system and fighting for those who can no longer fight for themselves who may be sitting behind bars wrongfully convicted. And I've decided that it's time for me to get into that fight full time. Like I said, this was not an easy decision to make, but I spent a lot of time praying about this, and I have absolute peace that this is the direction that I'm supposed to go. And I'm looking forward to all of you coming along for the ride. The topic of today's show will be focusing on the man who has been coined a serial killer on Serial. A few months back, we planned to go episode by episode discussing each of the suspects in this case. Once we got to Don and uncovered all these things that we didn't know, we've been going down that track for quite some time. So I thought today, while that investigation is continuing and we're waiting on the analysis from Jim Clemente and Laura Richards, we should go back and take a detailed look at Ronald Lee Moore as a suspect. I still get the occasional email from people asking about Moore and people theorizing about him being Heyman Lee's murderer. And what I found when I started researching Ronald Lee Moore is that there's a lot of misinformation on the internet out there about him. It's taken quite a bit of time to dig through and find the original source documents and the original newspaper articles that were discussing him to get a clearer picture. On Serial, it was mentioned that Ronald Lee Moore was a serial killer who was accidentally released from prison just 10 days before Heyman Lee went missing. And now some of this came from Serial and some of it is spun off from speculation about Serial. But the picture that seems to have been painted across the internet is that Ronald Lee Moore was a serial killer and that his M.O. was killing Asian women via strangulation and raping them. And what I found through my investigation is that very little of that is true. For starters, Ronald Lee Moore is not a serial killer. It appears that Ronald Lee Moore has committed precisely one murder. And it was indeed an Asian woman. And I'll get to the details about that shortly but I want to walk you through who Ronald Lee Moore was in the timeline of his criminal activity. Moore had a very troubled criminal past. Moore was a known crack addict, a burglar, and the burglaries usually included rape when a female victim was involved. Ronald Lee Moore was indeed in jail in December of 1999. I do not have details of why he was incarcerated at that time, but I do know from his criminal search and from other research that he had not committed any murders, at least not that anyone knew about, up to that point. On January 1st, 1999, Ronald Lee Moore was indeed released from jail. However, he was not released by mistake, at least not that time. I believe it was mentioned on Serial that during the brief time that he was out of prison, that included the date when Heyman Lee went missing, that Moore was criminally active during that time and that he murdered two women. Well, that's half right. Moore did commit a murder during the time he was out of prison after he was released on January 1st, 99. 
The murder occurred in December of 99, and he was never charged with the crime because it wasn't discovered that he was involved until after he was dead. So let's walk through the timeline. Moore is released from jail on January 1st, 99. On October 23rd, 1999, in the town of Glen Burnie, Maryland, Moore attacked a woman in her apartment. The reports say that he was burglarizing her apartment and that he subdued the woman with a cattle prod and then sexually assaulted her. The crime occurred on October 23rd, however Moore was not arrested until later in 2000. Once he was caught and arrested, Moore was sentenced to 13 years in prison. He was hit with multiple charges including burglary, sexual assault, performing perverted acts, and the list goes on. There's a handful of charges that went with that arrest. So in 2000, Moore is sentenced to 13 years in prison. He stayed in prison until 2007. This is when he was erroneously released. It was blamed on a clerical error. He was supposed to be transferred from the Baltimore City Correctional Center to the Anne Arundel County Detention Center. But there was a mix-up in the paperwork, and he was accidentally released. But this was not in 1999. This was in 2007. I found a few articles online that had that date listed as 2010, 2011. Like I said, there's a lot of misinformation out there. But I can confirm that his release did actually occur on November 21st, 2007. Once Moore was released, he fled to the state of Louisiana. On Christmas Eve in 2007, so just about a month after he was released from prison, Moore was arrested for burglary. He had broken into a home with a security alarm after first trying to break into the neighbor's home unsuccessfully. When he was arrested, he gave the police a false name. However, when they took his fingerprints, they ran them through the national database, and he came up as being wanted in Maryland, because that's where he was supposed to be serving his 13-year sentence for the sexual assault and burglary that occurred in 1999. So after making contact with the police from Maryland, Moore was scheduled to be transferred back to the Anne Arundel County Detention Center. But he never made it. One of the guards from the jail in Louisiana found Moore in his cell, hanging from a drawstring from a mesh laundry bag tied to an air conditioning vent over his toilet in his cell. Ronald Lee Moore committed suicide in 2007, and that was the end of his crime spree. But this wasn't the last time that we would hear about Ronald Lee Moore. Just over a year ago, in 2014, a Maryland cold case was linked to Ronald Lee Moore through DNA testing, and this was that murder that I mentioned a little bit earlier. On December 13, 1999, Annalise Lee was found dead in her apartment. She was a 27-year-old woman of Asian descent, and she had suffered blunt force trauma and strangulation. Her apartment had also been burglarized. Ronald Lee Moore's DNA linked him to that murder. Of course, he never paid for this crime through the court system as he had already been dead for seven years before it was discovered that he was involved. As far as we know, or as far as anyone knows for that matter, this is the only murder that Ronald Lee Moore ever committed. So again, I'll back up the timeline. Moore is released from prison on January 1st, 99. He burglarized, cattle prodded, and sexually assaulted a woman on October 23rd, 99. And on December 13th, 1999, he burglarized, raped, and murdered Annalise Lee in her apartment. A few months later, in 2000, he was arrested for the October 23rd crime and sentenced to 13 years in prison. He was accidentally released from prison on November 21st, 2007. He fled to Louisiana, was caught burglarizing a home on Christmas Eve. He was arrested for that crime. His fingerprints linked him back to Maryland, and he hung himself in his cell. Ronald Lee Moore appears to have been a horrible human being, but he was not a serial killer. But given the limited information that we have, let's try to see how Moore relates to the Heyman Lee murder case as a suspect. He did indeed murder an Asian female by strangulation. But as far as I can tell, that is the only similarity linking him to Hay's murder. Moore's motivation for most of his crimes was burglary. And when he burglarized a female and found them alone, he raped them. While Annalise Lee and Heyman Lee's injuries are very similar, blunt force trauma and strangulation, that appears to be where the similarities end. And while reading about Ronald Lee Moore, I couldn't help but think back to Jim Clemente's profile and his analysis of Hayes' murder. Remember that he said that he believed that the person who committed this crime would have had a known relationship to Hay. 
and the reason that he believed that was because her body was moved and the murderer attempted to conceal it. Jim said in that episode that a normal human reaction after murdering someone is to get as far away from the body as quickly as possible. And if the murderer has no connection to the victim, that's the most common and most practical method to not get caught. When a body is found and the perpetrator isn't around it and they have no known relationship with the victim, meaning no one has any idea they would have been together, that's what makes the most sense. So try to think about this practically. Ronald Lee Moore, the crackhead, burglar, murdering rapist, attacks Hay, doesn't burglarize her, as far as we know, doesn't rape her, and rather than just running away because no one has any idea he would have been anywhere near her, he takes the time to put her body in a car, and as we know from the lividity evidence, he would have actually had to either move the body or leave it lie where it was for somewhere between 6 and 12 hours, and then move it again into some kind of a vehicle, transport her body out to Leakin Park, haul her out into the woods, and bury her. Moore was an experienced criminal. I just don't see any way possible that he would think that that was the best way to not get caught. To spend somewhere between 6 and 12 hours with the body that he just murdered, drive around town with her in a vehicle, carry her into the woods, none of that makes sense for someone whose typical M.O. is to steal enough things to get enough money to get his next score of crack. Now, I'm sure you're starting to get the drift that I don't think that Ronald Lee Moore had anything to do with Heyman Lee's murder. But the discussion about Moore can still be useful to us because I think that by looking at the actions of a random criminal, burglar, rapist, murderer, it can give us a better sense of why what happened to Heyman Lee happened. The two cases that are documented that we know of were Moore assaulted a female. Both times they were assaulted in their homes. And both of them were left in their homes. There was no transporting of bodies. There was no attempt to conceal the bodies. He just grabbed some things off the shelves and got out of there. And he left Annalise Lee's body lying dead in her apartment. Now imagine in the case of Annalise Lee, if it had been someone that she had a known relationship with. If she had been raped and strangled by someone that other people knew she would be spending time with. Someone that would be a suspect because of their known relationship. In their case, the best way to conceal their crime is to get rid of the evidence. It's worth taking the risk of moving a body and carrying it into the woods and attempting to bury it to conceal it. The purpose behind doing that is so that no one will find the body and no one will know that the murder has been committed so that no one will come looking for them. So by investigating Ronald Lee Moore, I've accomplished two things. Number one, in my opinion, Ronald Lee Moore can be ruled out as a suspect. And number two, it makes Jim Clemente's preliminary profile make even more sense than it already did. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Before I close the show out today, I want to read through a couple of listener emails. My first email is from Ashley Rivers. Ashley writes, Hi Bob, I've been listening to your podcast nearly nonstop for the past week. I was late to the game. I sent you a few emails to your old address and started one in response to your episode with Anne when she was explaining why she believes Adnan is guilty. It got erased, but I had some damn good points to make. Anyway, I'm in the middle of the most recent episode and heard your response to the I'm going to kill note 
maybe being upside down on the paper. I finally looked up the note to see what it says and found a really clear scan. I was convinced at first that it would have to be two different sheets of paper, but I'm procrastinating my work so spending way too much time on this. If you look at this image, and she gives a link here, the holes are on the right hand side of the page. So I think what looks like perforation marks on the other scans are actually some phenomenon of the scanner or something like that. You can see clearly in this image that it is not from a spiral notebook. I'm in the camp that doesn't think this note means a whole lot. I think the note is Aisha trying to make Anand feel better about their breakup by joking around. She puts in quotes as though Aisha is saying this. Here's the thing. Hay is pregnant and having mood swings. Like she'll come around once her hormones have calmed down. And then they are joking back and forth about pregnancy. Not a funny subject most of the time, but high schoolers do weird things and joke about things in a way adults find disconcerting. The I'm going to kill could be so many different things. It could be I'm going to kill this test. Or I'm going to kill my little brother for fill in the blank. Anyway, I don't think this note is relevant to the case at all. People say things like that all the time, but it doesn't mean they're going to go out and murder. This email is long enough. Thanks for reading it, and thanks for the podcast. Ashley. Thanks for sending in that email, Ashley. And I've had several other listeners send me that same link. And I can confirm now that the I'm going to kill note was definitely indeed written on the back of the breakup letter from Hay. And the reason for the confusion was nothing malicious on anyone's part. It's just that if you go online and search for images of that note, there are two different sets of images. One of them, like Ashley said, is some type of photocopy or scan, and there are rectangular holes down the left side of both pages, which would seem to indicate that it couldn't have been the back of the same page. However, there are scans out on the internet of the actual page, and it is most definitely from that note. Like Ashley said, it was not written on a note from a spiral-bound notebook. It was a standard piece of paper with the three holes punched in the side, and the side of the note with the I'm going to kill written on it has the holes punched in the right side of the page, and you can actually see the note from the other side bleeding through the page onto it. So like I mentioned in the last episode, I assume they would have had the original note in trial and someone would have noticed it. Seeing that image, and that's the image that Ashley linked to, it's clear that the original note was used and it was indeed written on the back of that page. However, I am definitely in the same camp, so to speak, as Ashley regarding the I'm going to kill note. I really don't think it's relevant to the case. It's one of those things that once you think someone is guilty and you pick apart everything in their life, you can certainly make anything look incriminating. When you look at the note, first of all, that breakup note was from November. And I believe I've said this on the podcast before, I would put a lot of weight into this if it not had scratched in big bold letters on the side of the note with the breakup letter or in big scribbled letters across the breakup note. But it was written on the back side of the page in the midst of a conversation that he was having with Aisha. Again, as I always try to do, I try to look at these things practically speaking and what would really be going through someone's head and what would really be happening. So imagine yourself in a non-situation. And let's say that all the people that think he's guilty are right and, and that he was filled with rage and he wanted to kill Hay. And so he takes this note and he looks at it and he's reading the note and he's just getting furious and full of rage and he's thinking, I'm going to kill her, I'm going to kill her, I'm going to kill her as he's reading the note. And so he does what then? Flips the note over and in clear, concise handwriting writes, I'm going to kill in the midst of a note back and forth with Aisha. It just doesn't make sense to me. What the prosecution tried to make that note out to be was that he was so angry about Hay breaking up with him and reading this note that he wrote, I'm going to kill. But why would he flip it over and write it on the back in the middle of this other conversation in the same type of handwriting all the rest of the note was written in? Meaning it wasn't this angry, scratching, I'm going to kill like you'd see on a murder mystery on TV. He just wrote, I'm going to kill in the middle of this conversation. It's also important to point out that we don't really know what exactly was being discussed on that. They were talking about the lecture that was going on at the time. I assume it was about pregnancy. They were talking about symptoms of pregnancy. Imagine yourself in a sexual education class in high school. As they were talking about the symptoms of pregnancy, they're joking back and forth. Maybe she has these symptoms. I kind of see that the lecture was going where they were talking about contraceptives and abortion. He writes, I'm going to kill a little bit further down the note. They talk about how clumsy she is and that maybe that could cause an abortion. We just don't know anything about the context about why he wrote that. It could have been completely unrelated. 
Someone could have walked by and flicked him in the ear, and he wrote the note to Aisha, I'm going to kill. We have no idea what that was written about, and I really don't think it's relevant to the case. But I do want to confirm that it was indeed written on the back of that note. So thank you, Ashley, for sending that in. Also, another thing I want to clear up, it's been stated before, but I seem to be getting a lot of emails recently with people asking me this. So rather than respond to a thousand emails about it, a lot of people keep asking me if Hay was pregnant when she was murdered. And the answer to that is no, 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 she was not. The autopsy report concluded she was not pregnant. My next email comes from James. James writes, I'll put the important stuff first, then the niceties. I'm currently listening to episode 20. I jumped around a bit as you dropped new episodes along with Undisclosed, and I was wondering if anyone ever looked into Hayes' driving timeline. What I mean is, I've driven that area a few times for work, and if Hay was seen leaving school at 2.30 to 3 o'clock and needed to pick up her cousin at 3.15, how long does it take to drive to the early learning center from her school? People have said she had, quote, something to do. Well, how much time would she have had to do it? I was in the pizza delivery business for years, and people sometimes don't realize how long it really takes to get from point A to point B. If she left at 2.30, that only gives her 45 minutes to, quote, do something and make it back to the daycare. I don't know. I think there's something to this. I'm just not sure what. Maybe it's nothing, but I wanted to drop you a line about it. Anyway, I want to also say, Bob, first that I'd like to thank you for the work you put into this podcast. I was late to the game and having just listened to Serial about a few months ago and then finding Undisclosed after that. After getting caught up in current episodes, I went in search of your podcast because they mentioned it several times. I started from the beginning and man, totally feel like you're building something that will affect many lives as you continue to dig deeper into this and future cases. P.S. What was the name of that book we should read? Well, thank you, James, for all of that. So I'll kind of go in reverse order. The book that I asked you guys to read is called Chasing Justice, and it's written by Carrie Max Cook. And Carrie is writing about his experience of being falsely imprisoned for a murder that he didn't commit and being put on death row for 20 years and eventually freeing himself. He walks through all the horrible things that happened to him from the investigation to the arrest and then prison and the whole process that he went through. It is an awesome read and it does have relevance to the next case that I'll be discussing here on the show. I actually had the opportunity a few weeks ago to speak with Mr. Cook on the phone and he is just a super cool guy and he's been through a lot and he's still fighting. He does want to come on the podcast and interview at some point and talk to all of you about his experiences. But right now, he's still going through some legal battles, so he needs to keep kind of a low profile for the moment. Uh, but he's assured me that at some point, he wants to come on the show and do an interview, so I'm really looking forward to that. But again, the name of that book was Chasing Justice by Carrie Max Cook, and that's Carrie with a K, K-E-R-R-Y. Moving backwards up the email to your next point, uh, thank you for all the compliments, and I especially want to thank you for having the faith that us moving forward with this movement, with this podcast, is going to affect many lives, and I really believe that it will. And I also just wanted to take a moment to let all of you know how the format is going to be as we move on to our next case. I've done a lot of research, and I'm still waiting on FOIA requests for documentation and everything to start going forward on the next case once we're done with this one. But now that I'll be devoting my efforts full-time to this starting in January, I just want to let you all know that this show is going to be dynamic. The purpose of the podcast is to keep you all informed and to keep you engaged. The reason what we're doing has been successful is because of all of your involvement. Many of you listeners have helped me research things. You've brought things to my attention that I didn't notice before. You've asked the questions that have triggered a thought process in my mind that's moved me forward in an investigation. I'm the one in the studio behind the mic, but this is about all of us tackling this justice system and trying to force reform. And with that being the mission, I just want you all to know that I don't know how things are going to go. Meaning, we may not be discussing this next case for a year. We may be discussing it for a month. Or we may be discussing it for six weeks and then another case will come in that we'll jump over to and start working that one. And then come back to the one we were working on before. As these emails come in, as these cases come in, I'm constantly going to be looking for a place where we can make a difference. And if that means we have to hit pause on the current case and move on to that one for a short period of time and move back, that's what we're going to do. So keep in mind as we move forward with this that this show is not about entertainment. It's about change. It's about reform, and it's about truth and justice.
now all the way back to the beginning of your email talking about Hayes ride time. The best estimates that I could get from MapQuest and Google Maps is that depending on the route Hay would take to the Early Learning Center, it was somewhere between a 7 and a 9 minute drive. And that seems to be about right because most of her classmates said she typically left school around 3 o'clock. And since she had to pick her cousin up at 3.15, that would be plenty of time to get up there and get that done. So with that being said, I think that you are onto something. It's not nothing. I think it's very relevant for us to understand that Hay had a normal routine. I think that it is extremely unlikely that she was just intercepted at a random place by a random person. She was on a mission that day and she had somewhere to be. So much so that she denied rides to possibly a non to Kira because she had to go to this place and do whatever it is she had to do. I don't think it was something like cashing a paycheck or going to the store because I think she would have said that. Think about it. If someone asked you for a ride and you can't because you're in a time crunch, you would say, sorry, I can't. I have to stop at the bank on the way to get my cousin. Or I can't because I have to get gas before I go pick up my cousin or whatever the case may be. There were several people that she told them that something came up she couldn't give them a ride, and that she had to go. And keep in mind that after she picked up her cousin at 3.15, she didn't have to be to work that day until 6 o'clock. So whatever it is that came up had to have been done. I feel like she had to have been meeting someone somewhere specific at a specific time that caused her to be in a hurry. If it was something like cashing a paycheck, she could very easily have picked her cousin up and then had plenty of time to go cash the paycheck or go to the store, or go do anything else. The time crunch to me means that it revolves around a person. She was meeting someone. And I believe that she would have been meeting someone that did not go to Woodlawn. She didn't leave with anyone. She was going somewhere to be somewhere, in my opinion, to meet with someone. Now, we don't know who that someone is, but my gut's telling me that that someone is the person that murdered her. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. My last email is from Andy. Andy writes, Hi Bob, I wanted to write an email with a question that seems to be what I keep coming back to when reconciling all the information I have listened to and read. To level set, I've listened to Serial, all of the undisclosed episodes and addendums. I started listening to your podcast in August, and I read the Intercept interviews of Jay and Yurik. In my opinion, your podcast and Undisclosed have done a great job discrediting the police department and prosecution team in this matter. At this point, I don't believe Adnan should have been convicted of the crime under our justice system. My question centers around one statement made by Jay in the Intercept interview. Generally, I don't believe the details provided by Jay have any credibility given his ever-changing story. But he said this in the Intercept interview. There's nothing that's going to change the fact that this guy drove up in front of my grandmother's house, popped the trunk, and had his dead girlfriend in the trunk. I think Jay is a liar, but every single word a lie? Completely separate from the legal requirements, it's the point I keep coming back to when challenged with the moral question of who is the killer. 
I thought I would ask your opinion since you clearly have resolute conviction in the cause to free Adnan. Based on what I have listened to, I agree he should be free. However, I'm curious about this point and thought I would see if you had any time to respond. Thank you, best, Andy. Thank you, Andy, for that email. And I understand what you're saying, that it's just really hard to believe that Jay would just lie about everything. How could he make up all of these things and all of these details? It's really hard to wrap your brain around. And just as a follow-up to last week where I played the news clip where the reporter stated that the police knew that Hay had been strangled and had found her car while they were seeking out a suspect, but they were withholding that information from the public. And I had a lot of people emailing me asking me what the significance of that was. So I thought I'd quickly explain that. The significance is that if what that reporter said was true, it means that Jay did not lead the police to the car like they said that he did. The report said that they had already found the car while they were seeking out a suspect and that they were withholding that information from the public, which is not an uncommon practice. Oftentimes, police will find a vehicle like that and they'll put surveillance on the vehicle. They'll wait to see if the perpetrator returns to get the car or just returns to check out and make sure that it's still there and they'll watch it. So it's not uncommon for that to happen. There's nothing wrong with the police doing that. The problem is that if that report was accurate, then that means that the police then lied and said that Jay led them to the car in order to make their case stronger. Really, in order to make their case work at all, because that was a huge point even to this day that people have a hang-up with trying to believe that Jay didn't know anything about this crime, because he must have. He led them to the car. So I just wanted to let you guys know that I don't have the answers yet, but I am still working on it. I've been fervently trying to get a hold of the reporter who made that report. I've spoken with people at the news agency that produced the report. They're trying to find through their archives if they have any old material. I don't believe they probably will, but we're hoping that we can find the original press release or the original uncut footage of that. Like I mentioned on the last episode, when reporters report on things like this, they report off of either a press release or a statement by a public information officer or a PIO, meaning that that information, unless the reporter just completely misspoke, that information came from the police department. And that may seem crazy that the police are telling the press that this is what happened and then later tried to hide it, but it's really not that crazy. Ritz and McGillivary were the detectives working the case. They're the ones that presented the narrative later that said that Jay led them to the car. But it wasn't Ritz and McGillivary that talked to the press. Baltimore is a big city, large metro police department. They have people called public information officers or PIOs that will make statements to the press. Or they have high-ranking brass, captains or chiefs that make these statements. So someone above them made the statement. That person would have known back when the car was found, if it was indeed found before the night that Jay supposedly led them to it, that they had it and that they were withholding it. That would have been part of their briefings, part of their plan in the investigation, is that we have the car, we're sitting on it, we're trying to see if someone comes back. That person, however, wouldn't know that later Ritz and McGillivary were going to claim that Jay led them to the car. Even when you listen to the interview where Jay supposedly leads them to the car, it's completely nonsensical. Supposedly, in the unrecorded pre-interview, Jay told them that he knew where the car was. However, when you look at the notes from that pre-interview, there's nothing written in there about Jay knowing where the car is. This was a huge piece of the case. It was the thing they were looking for more than anything else was that car, hoping to find evidence in it, something that would lead him to the murderer. And they're expecting us to believe that during that pre-interview, Jay says, I know where her car is, and they don't even write it down in their notes. They don't even make mention of the fact that he knows where the car is. They don't send a patrol unit out to go secure the car. They do nothing. It's not until hours later, late into the recorded interview, where they make mention about the car. And when you read the transcripts, when they make mention of that car, there's no sense of urgency there. They're not saying you can tell us the location of the car. What they're saying is, I'm paraphrasing, you can show us where the car is, or you can show us the location of the car. If you didn't have all of your preconceived notions about the case and everything wrapped around it, and you just read those transcripts, 
I don't think that you would get the impression based on the pre-interview notes and the interview transcripts that they had no idea where the car was and Jay sprung this on him that he did and he would take them there. That's not the way it reads. That's not the way it sounds. But I'm hoping that that news report will hold the key in the answer to this. Somewhere, hopefully in the archives of that newsroom, is the uncut footage. And what I mean by that is, because it happens to me all the time, when you get interviewed after an incident or you're doing a press release or a press conference, they'll record 15 or 20 minutes of video. And then when you watch it on the news, there'll be a five-second clip of you talking. Well, that was the case when you watch the YouTube video of this report. You see a person who is not Ritz, not McGillivary, someone in a suit from the police department speaking, and it cuts in, shows a couple seconds of him talking, and then cuts back out. Well, somewhere there is that full interview where all of the information we're looking for is, and hopefully soon we'll find it. But getting back to Jay's lies and Andy's email, we all know that Jay has multiple versions of this story, and we can make excuses for them. For example, the trunk pop location. Well, I don't think there's any one of you that believes that you forget where you saw a dead body in a trunk. If Jay saw a dead body in the trunk, obviously he would remember where that happened. That's an image that's burned into your mind for the rest of your life. Yet he changes multiple times where the trunk pop happened, when the trunk pop happened. And we can say, well, he was it really happened at Grandma's house and he was trying to protect Grandma, which doesn't make any sense, or... Or it really happened at Best Buy, but he didn't want to say Best Buy because there might be cameras, which doesn't make any sense. But we can try to make excuses for why he kept changing that location. And of course, there's all of the other inconsistencies in his story. But when listening again to Jay's interviews, I found another inconsistency that I found to be pretty meaningful. And I'm going to need some of your help to confirm this. In both of Jay's interviews, when he's describing the process of burying hay, and walking back in the woods at Lincoln Park. He consistently describes the scene as being light enough to see because there's snow on the ground. The detectives are asking him, how did you see? Was there a flashlight? He says, no, we didn't have a flashlight. It was dark, but you could see because there was snow on the ground. And they ask about the moon. Was there a full moon, or how is it that you had enough light? And Jay says, well, there was snow on the ground, and with the moonlight, he said it wasn't bright enough to read a book but he could definitely count change in his hand. And several times he mentions the fact that there's snow on the ground. Well, my thought was, it was over 50 degrees that day. I don't remember any stories of it snowing any time in the direct couple of days before that. I wonder if there was snow on the ground. So I went online and I pulled up the historical weather data for Baltimore during the couple of weeks before January 13th. And based on what I found in the historical weather data, I don't believe there was any chance that there was any snow on the ground other than piles from the plow trucks right on the edges of the roads. And this is why. Going back as far as January 4th. On January 4th, there was a high of 30, no precipitation. The 5th was a high of only 26, but no precipitation. The 6th, it was a high of 34, so it got above freezing, no precipitation. On the 7th, it was a high of 35, again above freezing, no precipitation. On the 8th, it snowed a little bit, less than an inch, it snowed till about 1.30 p.m., and then the snow turned to rain. On the 9th, it was 43 degrees, so well above freezing, and Baltimore got a quarter inch of rain on that day. So now we're on the 9th of January. There's been just a little trace of snow, but it was followed by warm temperatures and a quarter inch of rain, which would have melted the snow. On the 10th of January, it was a high of 27, so it never got above freezing. The 11th, 28, same. But the 12th, the day before he went missing, it was a high of 53 degrees. So a very unseasonably nice warm day on the 12th. And then on the 13th, the day he went missing, there was a high of 57. So in those 10 days, there was trace amounts of snow, followed by rain, and then another quarter inch of rain the next day. After that last snow, it was 43 degrees, then 27, 28, 53 degrees, and then 57 degrees. So when looking at that, it just didn't seem to me that it would be possible for there to still be snow on the ground. Just this past week here in Michigan, we got nine inches of snow, and it was bitter cold. That was followed by two days in the upper 40s and lower 50s. And I noticed, because it happened to be about the time I was researching this, that when I came home from work on that second 50-degree day, the fields behind my house were completely green. Nothing but green grass, not a bit of snow anywhere. 
other than the little piles on the side of the road that had a little bit left of them from where the plow trucks had been through. And that was after six to nine inches of snowfall accumulation. Two days before this, my kids were making snowmen in the front yard. But two days of temperatures in the upper 40s and lower 50s and the snow was gone. So in Baltimore on the 8th, they get a tiny bit of snow followed by rain and then two really warm days in the 50s. And Jay's claiming that when they were burying the body, he could see because the ground was covered in snow. So I've been trying to find out if I can verify documented that there was or was not snow on the ground in Baltimore on January 13, 1999. I talked to Adnan and Hayes' friend Krista about it and asked her, and she couldn't be sure. She said she doesn't think there was snow, but that was 16 years ago. She can't remember. Remember that the day Hay went missing was not a significant day. No one realized what had happened to her. Weather-wise, that ice storm moved in overnight the next night. It started at about 4.30 in the morning. So then I thought I would try to do some image searches online for anything that occurred on January 13th, 1999 in Baltimore, where there might be a picture outside where I could see what everything looked like. And the problem is, if you go on Google and type in January 13th, 99, all you get is a million pages of serial stuff, which wasn't entirely helpful. But then I remembered that they had that significant ice storm that moved in that night, and it was a major weather event. Schools were closed for two days after that. So I started searching for news articles for January 14th reporting about the ice storm. And I found some YouTube videos of news reports that were filmed on the morning of January 14th reporting on the ice storm. And guess what I found? There's cameras all over town showing cars slipping and sliding on the ice. This ice storm was not a snowstorm. And you could see it in these videos. If you Google what I'm talking about, you'll see it. It was like a freezing rain that started coming down, and as temperatures dropped, it just immediately froze. So there's like a coating of clear ice all over everything, all over the street. They were showing people trying to scrape the ice off of their cars, but it didn't snow that night. There was just freezing rain and ice. And as these cameras are shooting all over town in Baltimore of these cars slipping and sliding on the ice, what I noticed was in the background, all I saw was green grass. There was snow on the edges of the road, like I mentioned, from the plows. But the yards, the grass, in the woods in some of the shots, there's no snow on the ground. Now, and to put that into some perspective, on the night of the 13th going into the 14th, the temperatures fell below freezing at about 2 a.m. So before the ice storm came in, the temperatures were already below freezing. The light freezing rain began to fall at 4.30 a.m. It was 28 degrees, and the wind chill was 16 degrees. And what I'm getting at is there's no more snow melting. Whatever was melted that night before is done, because now it's well below freezing, especially with the wind chill, and there's ice accumulating on everything. So this is where I could use your help. This is pretty compelling evidence to me that Jay was lying about this, that there was no snow on the ground on January 13th. And therefore, his story about a combination of the snow and the moon giving them light can't be true. It's also important to point out that on January 13th, on that night, the moon was a waning crescent. Which, For those of you that don't know the moon phases, the waning crescent means the moon is getting smaller and smaller. It's a couple days away from the new moon. There's just a sliver of a crescent of moon. So not much light there. But what I'm looking for is any of you listening that are from the Baltimore area or are just really good at online research, they can find me some sort of documented proof, a picture of the track team outside, any photo that was taken outside on January 13th, 1999, please send that to me. Email it to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. I think that it's very relevant if we can prove that there was no snow on the ground that day. Like I said, this is pretty compelling evidence, but there was a period of time between when Jay said the body was buried and 2 a.m. when temperatures were still slightly above freezing, meaning the snow could have still been melting a little bit at that point. However, with the lividity evidence, we also know that the body couldn't have been buried until at least 11 o'clock p.m. But if we can see a photo or a video from January 13th that shows there's no snow on the ground, it's significant, and it's significant for this reason. Jay saying that there was snow on the ground that provided light to him so he could see is significant because that's not a lie. It's not a lie to cover something up. It's not a change of a location. 
It's not a change of a time to match a cell record. That is a distinct memory. If you actually haul a body into the woods and bury someone that you went to high school with, again, that is an image that is burned into your mind. It is a memory you will never forget. You would see in your mind, according to Jay, a shovel going into the ground, and you would know whether or not there was snow around it. If we can prove conclusively that there was no snow on the ground that day, I believe that is very conclusive proof that Jay does not know what the hell that he's talking about. That he did not help Barry Hayes' body. And that he was never there. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing our logo. Thank you to our sponsors today, Audible and Sean T. Fitness. And thank you to all of you for putting up with my brief vacation and tuning in today. Please stay engaged. Keep sending me your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. If you have a Twitter account and you're not following the show, please go ahead and do that at truthjusticepod. That is the best way to keep up to date with what's going on. There's conversations back and forth every day. That's the place where I'm most active. I do have a Facebook page, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, and I do try to get on there as much as I can. But truthfully, I really don't like Facebook. I like Twitter a lot better, so that's where I spend more of my time. I go on Facebook because I know I do have fans that are over there, so I do want to try to keep up and communicate with them. But if you have a Twitter account, or even if you don't have a Twitter account, go ahead and create one. It's free. It's easy. It takes a couple of minutes. Follow us at Truth Justice Pod and join in on the conversation there. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Hey, Jill. Thanks for listening.